Thanks, Alan. And if you guys have your Bibles, I hope you do turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 10 this morning. As you're praying, I want to remind you about our prayer calendars that are available in the lobby. The December prayer calendars are out now for a unified effort for TBC to pray together as a body. Uh, today's verse is from 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31, that, that says, The word of the Lord is true, and he is a refuge to all who take protection in him. And so I want to encourage you in that. We are praising God that he is our refuge this time of year as well as every other time and of course, preparing our hearts for, for a Christmas season, like Alan was mentioning. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10. Of course, this is going to be the most encouraging and uplifting sermon series that you're going to hear during the Christmas holiday, right? And, and today is going to be quite depressing, but uh, we're going to apply this to the gospel. Each week, we're looking at Ecclesiastes and seeing so much truth about Christ and what he's done for us through the gospel message and how all of this is fulfilled in the greatest hope that we do have, who is the person of Christ and his work for us on the cross. But, but today's, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting what Solomon has been doing here. We've, we've seen him put a lot of different hats on and take a lot of different views at life. Probably his favorite hat to put on is the, is the hat of the philosopher. And he's talking about the meaning of life. And of course, um, Any time that you talk about the deep things and the meanings in life, you're going to come to, at, at some point in time, this great problem of evil that we all face. Why do innocent people suffer? And we all ask the why questions when it comes to these problems, especially when suffering hits our own lives and hearts. Uh, why me? Why now? Why this? Why that person? Uh, we are tempted to think that, that suffering and death is not normal. Um, Shakespeare would tell us almost the exact opposite. Something in, in suffering certainly doesn't seem fair, but he would suggest that suffering is the norm instead of this exception. Each new morn, a new widow's howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven in the face. One book I was reading this week talked a lot about an um, incident. You probably remember this back in 2002. Remember the, uh, the DC sniper, the Beltway sniper? And for a long, long time, uh, the Northeast area was, was concerned about the sniper because, and a lot of people were saying this, it doesn't seem like he has any concern about ethnicity, uh, age, people, it's just random people were on the beltway and they were being shot by a sniper. And Ann, Ann Patchett wrote this article in, in, I think it ran in Times Magazine. And I want to quote this, it's, it's a really interesting perspective. She said, we're always looking to make some sort of sense out of murder in order to keep it safely at bay. Say things like, I do not fit the description, I do not live in that town, I would never have gone to that place or know that person. But what happens when there is no description, no place, no buddy? Where do we go for peace of mind? And then listen to this. She says, the fact is that staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. 
but a sniper taking a single clean shot, not into a crowd, but through the sight, reminds us horribly of death itself. Despite our best intentions, it is still, for the most part, random. And it is absolutely coming. So listen, whether we are a a victim of a heinous and hideous crime, or whether it's just me talking to all three of my kids on a very basic daily basis, we all need to deal with this lesson in life. Number one, life is not fair. Life is not fair. I've stolen the, the title for the sermon actually from Gary Braswell in a sermon that he taught not too long ago. Life is not fair. Now listen, we've just made it through a, a huge section in Ecclesiastes. The first part of this book was all about Kohelet's search for meaning. And there was very personal statements, there was impersonal statements, but now as we approach the end of the book from chapter six, verse 10, all the way to, through chapter 12, verse seven, we're just gonna get Kohelet's advice. Each sermon from here on out until we end this book is just gonna be life lessons, biblical life lessons that Solomon has, has learned as he has pursued the meaning of life and as, as he has lived it, just like all of us live it. And the lesson that is extremely important right at the beginning, it's a lesson that a postmodern generation needs to learn and learn well. And that's this, life is not fair. Every person in this room over the age of 40 right now is shaking their heads and saying, yep, I've learned that over and over again. Life in a fallen world isn't fair. And look no further than the cross of Christ to understand it. An innocent man who did absolutely nothing wrong, a poor man from a rural town, and they hung him on a cross for absolutely no good reason. I want you to look down at, at chapter 7, verse 13. Here's how Ecclesiastes, this, uh, this section is going to end here. Look down at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, this verse should sound extremely familiar to you. It was almost verbatim used in chapter one, verse 15. Only the first time the preacher used this saying or this idea about making straight things that are crooked and not being able to do it, he left God out of the picture. Now in chapter seven, verse 13, he brings God back into the picture. C.S. Lewis often talked about the clear, cold picture of man's life without God describing it as as crooked paths, things that we experience that reflect this fact that life is not fair almost on a daily basis. So as he brings God back into the picture, he shows us that even though it's not fair, God is still sovereign. Look down at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider this. Both the straight things and the crooked things are under God's care. Both prosperity and adversity are under God's care. Again, life's not fair, but God is still good. He is still in control, and he is still sovereign. As finite human beings, one man has said, we cannot change God's agenda. 
we cannot change God's agenda. So let's look at at three points in our outline this morning. Three things that Solomon is going to tell us to communicate the fact that life is not fair. Number one, good is better than glee. Good is better than glee. We're going to see this at the end of chapter 6, verse 10 through 12. It's a transitional statement. Number two, coffins are better than cots. And number three, rebuke is better than reverence as we finish out chapter 7. Ernest Becker, I don't know if this is a name you're familiar with. He's a very, uh, very famous anthropologist. He actually got kicked out of the University of California, Berkeley. Okay, so if you're a professor and you get kicked out of Berkeley, you know that I'm not quoting Becker here to uh, support his findings, right? He wrote a, a Pulitzer Prize winning book in 1974 called The Denial of Death. And here's what he says, I think this is good. He says, I think that taking life seriously means something like this, that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it's false. Ecclesiastes is very straightforward about the rumble of panic that is underneath everything we do. And the name the preacher gives to it is death. One day, it is inevitable, we are all part of the ultimate statistic. 10 out of 10 of us will die. How do we find meaning in life? How do we find hope in life? And how do we make sense of suffering knowing that that's the fate that we have approaching and facing us? Number one in your outline, number one this morning. Listen, life is not fair, and God's goodness is often better than glee. God's goodness is often better than glee. Look down at chapter 6, verse 10. The preacher writes, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? That's a, that is a verse, Scott, as a preacher. I, I kind of just don't want to look at that one. The more words, the more vanity. Here I am, the one guy that's speaking all these words. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man when he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Interesting to note here, according to the Masoretic scribes, the Masoretes were the one that put vowel points into the Hebrew text, going back to about 1000 AD. They mark Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 12 as the very middle of the book. So one way to look at this, as you think about the structure and the content here of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has just finished his personal search for meaning. And if you want to find meaning, if you want to look for meaning under the sun, apart from God, guess what? You're not going to find it. Life is meaningless under a purely secular perspective. What you will find is a general consensus of what the world tells you. The world tells you life in history is cyclical. It just goes around and around and it repeats itself. There's no beginning, middle, and end to history. Things just come and go, people come and go. Patterns seem to repeat themselves throughout all of history. We're not really going anywhere. The secular world will tell you 
Spend the rest of your life pursuing pleasure. After all, you are here one day, you are gone the next day. The world will tell you that there is oppression and injustice everywhere, and we can't seem to make sense of it. Might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Solomon sounds a lot like a philosopher, a lot like a postmodern philosopher in these texts. And this is so much different than what the Greek philosophers would have said in 400s, 500s BC. Uh, Plato's cry was, was that wisdom was to know yourself. And if you were going to know yourself, you would, you would have to live out of reason more so than anything else. So he concluded that we are good when we are dominated by reason rather than our desires. We are bad when we let our desires go unchecked. And so the best way that we can live life wisely is to keep our desires, keep our pursuits and our wants in check to reason and live a moral life. The postmodern comes along and they says, what's reasonable? What's really true? What's really moral in the first place? They, they don't have answers for these things. What's good for you is good for you, and that should be good for me as long as you don't harm anybody else in the process. Solomon says, verse 10, ultimately, there is always one who is stronger, one who you will not be able to argue with. Whatever comes to be has been named by him. He is in control. And the classic and traditional interpretation, interpretation for verse 10 is that the stronger one is, in fact, God. And God works in mysterious ways for his glory, but also for our good. And the question is rhetorical. Who knows what is good for man? Nobody. Nobody knows what is good for man except God. Only he knows. And he orchestrates our life in such a way that he reveals that goodness to us, even through pain and suffering. C.S. Lewis talks about the, the difficulty of understanding the goodness of God. He says, on the one hand, if God is wiser than we, his judgment must differ from ours on many things, and not least on good and evil. What seems good may therefore not be good in his eyes, and what seems to us evil may not really be evil. When we talk about goodness from others, typically what we mean is, is kindness, things that make us happy, therapy, therapy or therapeutic. And if that's your understanding of God's goodness, you don't have a father in heaven as much as a grandfather in heaven or a genie in the lamp, right? Because God exists solely for your happiness and for your enjoyment all the time, but God is good. And what that means is because of his goodness, he will do anything he can in his power and everything he can to mold us and to shape us into who he wants us to be, to help us stop depending and trusting on worldly things and start depending and trusting solely on him and on him alone. Remember a famous quote from Chronicles of Narnia, is he quite safe? Asked Lucy. Safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. You will only struggle with the goodness of God if you define that goodness and you attach a trivial meaning to it that the Bible does not attach. With man at the center, 
rather than God at the center. But because God is good as well as great, he can be trusted and loved no matter what we're going through in life, no matter the pain and no matter the suffering. Listen, life's not fair. The preacher is telling us life is not fair. God is telling us life is not fair. In a fallen world, things happen that shouldn't happen. This is not what God created the world to be. But God is still good. And even when we're not prone to happiness or glee, his goodness is always working through every situation in life. And we can trust him because of it. Goodness is better than glee. Life's not fair, number two, and coffins are better than cots. And, and Luke, if you don't mind, I want you to uh, pull up a soundbite back there. Don't play it quite yet, but I've got a soundbite for you. Um, Dennis Rainey did a DTS chapel, and he actually played this sound bit for Family Life Radio not too long ago. It's, it's a great clip. It's about four minutes long, and I just want you to listen to it. Before, before he plays this, though, I want to read uh, chapter 7, verse 1 through 4 here and just introduce this a little bit. Look down at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. A good name is better than a precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. And the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Um, the, the guy who you're going to hear, listen, uh, about to hear on the audio clip here, his name is Jerry Sitzer. And he has won Professor of the Year at least nine times at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. He went through a situation in life that is, that is probably one of the most difficult things I've ever heard anybody have to go through. And he wrote a book called A Grace Revealed, and I want to recommend that to you. He comes away with this perspective that, that coffins are better than cots, and you're going to listen, listen to why as this clip plays. Go ahead, Luke. 1991, September 27. On a lonely stretch of highway, I noticed a car coming on at a really rapid rate of speed. Slowed down just a little bit, it was a curve. And without any warning, he just drove right into me. Missed, missed to curve and just plowed head on at 85 miles an hour. In fact, it was so head on that his car cartwheeled over ours. So it was, uh, it was awful. And in the wake of that accident, as soon as I could collect myself, I looked around and knew that it was, uh, it was really bad. My mother, who was sitting way in the back, was seriously injured. And I could tell Linda, my wife, was catastrophically injured too. And uh, my uh, four-year-old, uh, I could tell, was, was dead. She was, had broken her neck. I uh, tried to get a pulse, did mouth to mouth, but it was hopeless. My other kids were dazed, crying, screaming. It was just chaotic. All the windows were broken out in the car. I got the kids out who were mobile. Uh, that is Catherine, who was eight, and David, who was six, and John, who was two. And then went back to try to attend to Linda, got a pulse, but knew she wasn't going to live. Her injuries were just too severe. 
and uh, as I said, did mouth to mouth and Dynagene on the uh, on the ground, but she was gone. People began to stop. I mean, the the scene was chaotic. Then something really beautiful happened. You know, you you find these flowers in the midst of ashes almost right away. Uh, some guy got out of the car and went over to my mother and reached out to her through the broken window and held her hand and stroked her arm until she died. That is a beautiful act of grace to me. Uh, it was very courageous of him in the midst of that chaos and that violence uh, to, to break through that with love and mercy. I wish I knew who that man was. I'd like to thank him. After about an hour, Catherine, David, and John and I were all put in the same uh, emergency vehicle and then were transported another hour up to Coeur d'Alene for emergency care. And that one hour was probably the most significant hour I've ever had in my life. It really was a turning point for me. It was like a wormhole from one reality to another. Uh, That honestly is the most accurate way I could describe it. Time ceased to have meaning. It, It could have been 10 years. That, that is frozen in my memory, that period of time. And it was probably the most rational moment I've ever had in my life. It was quiet. John was sedated. The other kids were whimpering, but it was quiet. The emergency personnel didn't say anything. And I had one hour to just be. I thought about the accident. I thought about the scene. I knew what had happened. And I thought about what would be as a result. I considered the tasks set before me. I really was, I, I was, I had a burden that was placed on my shoulders. And in a sense, a divine mandate that said, you draw a line in the sand right now and decide what you want to be and what you want to come from this experience. And I did. And I said, I want the bleeding to stop right here. This is it. I don't want to do things that are going to set in motion more and more pain and more and more bleeding that could go on for generations. And I made the basic decision right there and then that I was going to somehow, by the grace of God, respond and live this story out in a way that was going to be redemptive. And redemption was really the key term that just kept coming back to me, redemption. This is not the final word. We uh, played that clip not too long ago. Forrest was doing a a dress here right before I became a pastor at TBC. And it's interesting, I've I've used that in in Kansas too. We did a Theology of Suffering sermon series. And one of our our elders there had um, a wife who was was pregnant when she was real early on in their, their marriage. I think it was the first kid that they were, trying to have, and um, they realized during the pregnancy that the, the child had Potter's syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but um, basically there's, there's nothing that they can do. The, the child dies in the womb, and they have a stillbirth uh, at the end of it, and, and they knew that it was going to happen. Good grief. Um, so she said that, she listened to that clip, and she said she went through a very similar experience, and there was a nurse in the delivery room, and, and all she did was held her hand the whole time. Um, 
it turned out that, unbeknownst to her, that nurse was in the service in Kansas and uh, knew exactly who she was and knew the whole story, came up to her, and they, they had a um, kind of this reunion there. It was just a, it was kind of a cool thing, but, you know, why, why would the preacher say here, it is better to go to a funeral than to a party? We just had a, a graveside service for Karma Lavellet here, uh, just a handful of people at her graveside service. How can it be better to go to a funeral than a party? And his answer is because the living who are there will take it to heart. Everything comes into focus. I know you heard about his testimony there, but he, he felt like at that experience that he was having, the hour drive to the hospital facility was a wormhole into the, the most rational state of being he has ever experienced before. Because knowing how short life can be and how temporary it is puts everything else into focus. Death, end, or funeral parlor is used four times in as many verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The only other word that matches it is heart, also used four times as a metonymy, a part for the whole. Everything about us, the way we live, the way we process information, the way we think, it all goes through the avenue of our heart, and that will be impacted by the reality of our mortality, of our impending death. David Gibson writes this, death is a, a preacher with a very simple message. Birth is about potential. Death is about fulfillment and new beginnings. Death is so valued before God that he uses it as a dominant metaphor of what it means to come into this whole thing called the Christian life. And to live the whole thing called the Christian life is a constant death to self. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we look at all of our situations. And yes, again, life isn't fair. Righteous people die way too young all the time. Wicked people live way too long all the time. But with a gospel perspective and a hope that Scripture drives at, we can see redemption working through all of that. And as we go to these funeral services and these graveside services, we are met with the truth of the hope of the gospel, that this isn't the end. It wasn't the end of karma's life. It was just the beginning, and it was a brand new beginning. But life's not fair. What that means is God's goodness is better than glee, and coffins are often better than cots. Number three, rebuke is better than reverence. Rebuke is better than reverence. Look down at chapter 7, verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Do you believe that? Do you seek out harsh rebuke? from people who you know will tell you the truth even if it hurts? Would you rather hear that than a song? The rebuke of the wise is better than the song of fools. Verse six, for as crackling of thorns under a pot, thorns and pots have almost the exact sound, same sound in Hebrew there, it's a word play. As a crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. And this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives a wise man into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. 
Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Notice how much the anatomy and and the actions of a fool are described in those verses. Verse five at the end talks about the song of fools. Verse six in the middle, the laughter of fools. Verse nine at the end talks about the heart of fools. It stands out especially when you compare it to the beginning of, of chapter seven that talked about the wise man and being in the place of mourning and sadness and sorrow. Solomon said, wise men listen, fools sing. Wise men are patient, fools are proud. In verse five, you might take a, a brief note of that. It is, it is better to hear the rebuke of a wise man singular than the song of fools plural. Not only is a strong rebuke contrasted with a song, but also a singular is contrasted with a plural. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 25, verse 12. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 Verse 10 through 12 here is, is gonna, it's gonna end with comments about wisdom. Whereas these last verses were much more about the fool, now we're gonna capture this again with, with some verses on wisdom. And I'm gonna read this in the New English translation, the Net Bible, just because I think they, they smooth things out and it's the one that makes the most sense to me. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these days? For it is not wise to ask that. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. It benefits those who see the light of day. For wisdom provides protection just as money provides protection. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Life's not fair, right? But the good old days were so much better than these days are today. Man, I wish I could just go back to high school again and relive those glory days. Remember that, John? Man, we were playing basketball, and it was so much fun. Skip class and go hang out. Things sure aren't the way that they used to be. Assumption, I wish they would go back to how they were. That's not the voice of wisdom speaking there. And I don't, I don't know if you guys know this, but I've got these picture directories from the history of TBC, right? And so I've seen a lot of your photos from back in the 80s and the 90s, and I'm gonna tell you right now that you all look very much better than you did in 1985 and 1990, all right? So don't wish back for those old haircuts and those glasses and the dress that everybody was wearing back then. These days today, I promise you, in wisdom, are so much better than the days of the past. Um, A wise man doesn't look back and say, I wish it was like it used to be. The wise man lives in the present, redeeming every single step for the glory of God and making the most of his time. And so live in the present. Live knowing that you need to make the most of your time because your impending death is right in front of you. Let's let's apply this text. Uh, Solomon, he seems to say a lot about nostalgia in this passage. The first thing I want to put is, is denying the reality of evil in the past will blind you to good things in the present. 
Denying the reality of evil in the past has a tendency of blinding us to good things in the present. Not too long ago, um, Brandy and I, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but we took a, a vacation back to St. Louis, which is my hometown. It's where I was born and lived the first seven years of my life. And when I grew up in this town in St. Louis, we had the best block you could ever imagine. It was a cul-de-sac. And behind the deepest house in the middle of that cul-de-sac was this grass quarry. And it was just this, this massive hill behind that house. We would go back, we'd ride our bikes down that hill, we'd roll down that hill, we'd run down the hill, we'd try to run back up the hill and never could make it all the way back up without stopping to catch our breath. It was the place we always hung out. There was a little creek at the bottom of that hill. We'd go sledding down that hill. If St. Louis ever got snow, it was the, it was the best. It was so much fun. And so here I am, I come back to it now just a few years ago, go back to St. Louis thinking that I was just going to relive all of these memories and see that hill and the creek for all the glory that it was back when I was five and six years old. And so she pulls over the car and parks in the cul-de-sac and, and I walk back through the yards to just go look at this place of, of all of my childhood memories that were back there. And that hill, I, I swear it was like Mount Hood or Pikes Peak, that hill was probably about the size of this stairwell. And I thought it was, it was the greatest thing, right? Because everything in the past, because of our nostalgia, often just gets expanded and, and it grows over time. And the reality is, if we could go back, it wouldn't be as great anyway as the things that we have right in front of us that God gives us out of his goodness. I thought I was longing for the past day, but, but the reality was I was longing for something much deeper. What in fact was pulling at my heart was not the memories that were behind me. It was the memories that are in front of me and that sense of home and belonging that only God can give to us as we all walk this path in a fallen world longing for Eden longing for everything before the fall in Eden. C.S. Lewis uh, talks a little bit about this in nostalgia. He says, the books are the music in which we thought was the beauty. We thought beauty was located there. It will betray us if we trust to them, for it was not in them. Beauty is not in those past memories. Beauty only comes through them. And what comes through them is longing. He says these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but we are mistaken if we mistake them for the thing itself. They will turn into dumb idols and they will break the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower that we have not found, the echo of a tune that we have not heard, news from a far country we have not yet visited. Lewis goes on to say, if I, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Our memories and our longing for the past shouldn't drive us back to the past. It should drive us forward to what's ahead of us, our true home, our true identity, and our true belonging to Christ. Number two, since life is not fair, remember the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. 
are both under the hand of God. The day of prosperity and the day of adversity are both under the hand of God. It's, it's really interesting in the most famous sermon that was probably ever preached by Jesus was the Sermon on the Mount. And it ends with the illustration of storms, trials, suffering, and life. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice is like the wise man who had built his house upon the rock. There are two men in that parable. There is the wise man and there is the fool. There is the same house, there is the same storm. The one difference is the foundation. For the wise man, the storm reveals what, is the, what the foundation is. For the fool, the storm reveals that there is no foundation. Suffering and loss are a test. According to Scripture, at least one answer for suffering and loss is that it's a test. One man has said that life is like licking honey off a thorn. How you process loss, go back to that soundbite and just listen to it. How you process loss will determine the trajectory of your life from this day forward. And you have a choice every time you suffer and go through pain that either you will allow that pain and the bleeding to continue until it doesn't, or you will make a decision at that moment, right there and maybe even right now, that you are going to end the bleeding and decide that you are want to redeem this situation with the hope of the gospel and every other situation that would come after it. Today, Jerry Sitzer, for 20 years, raised three kids all on his own, lost three generations in that one accident, his mother, his wife, and his four-year-old daughter. He remarried 20 years later. God redeeming that situation and bringing hope to a hopeless context. Life is not fair. Gary, <laughs> it's not. And if you expect it to be fair for you, Solomon is going to say, wake up. <laughs> this is a fallen world. It's tough. We all experience pain and we all experience suffering. But the hope of the gospel is that is never the end of the story for us. It is never the end of the story for God because he will use all of those things and redeem it ultimately for his glory. After the cross came a Monday morning and the resurrection three days later. The triumph came after the death of Christ. As we go through pain and as we go through the loss, we bring that to the redemptive story of Christ in the gospel. Yes, he was born and he died a criminal's death, but he was also raised three days later, showing us and proving the path that his story wasn't finished, and neither is yours, neither is mine. All of us have hope that only the gospel can bring. And so I pray that that would impact your hearts as we prepare for Christmas this year. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for Ecclesiastes and um, apart from you, Lord, this book would be so dark and hopeless and depressing. 
but we bring everything that Solomon finds to the, to the foot of the cross. We see your hand of goodness over all things, prosperity and adversity. We see your redemption over all pain and suffering. We see your goodness, God. Help us to know that in all situations in life, you are in control. Nothing catches you off guard. We thank you for the truth and the the hope of the gospel. We thank you that we do have a home, a permanent home, a dwelling that is prepared for us. And as we go through life and as we go through suffering and trials, and even if those things lead to our very own death, we take great hope and encouragement. And just as Alan prayed, we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus, for what he's done for us. We look forward to the day of his return, and we pray that you would haste it, that our faith might be sight. We ask all of these things to you, Father, through the Son and and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.